0: This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. At the top of the episode this week I want to make a quick clarification so oftentimes with Ave Explorers we record these podcasts a, a good month in advance of when they're going to be released just based off of timing and you know needing to get people on the schedule so the conversation today which is now being released in late February of 2021, was recorded in early January of this year. So some of what we talk about is a little more timely to what was going on in the United States of America at that particular moment. And of course, colored the conversation that we have about the church in America. I still think, of course, it's very relevant, but I I wanted to make that clarification, that as my guest today, J.D. Flynn, the the co-founder and editor of The Pillar, a new Catholic news media uh, outlet, we chat about the American Catholic Church. And and let's be frank, let's be real, I imagine most of our listeners are American Catholics, or at least know uh, kind of what's going on in the American Catholic Church, which is namely that there seems to be quite a bit of tension and division oftentimes in the American Catholic Church between different ideologies or different preferences or even just different opinions on, on how to address the current moments that we find ourselves in as Americans and as Catholics. When we're thinking about Catholicism around the world, uh, my own country of origin, the United States of America, uh, the country where most of our listeners probably live, is one that needs to be looked at. And JD is, I think, the perfect person to help us dig into that, to look at the nuances, to unpack what is going on, what isn't going on, what's important, what's relevant, how to discuss these things from a news media perspective. That's our conversation today. This is, of course, all part of our Ave Explorer series on Catholicism around the world. You can find all of the content we're creating, other podcast episodes, Facebook Live conversations, social media exclusives, articles, all of that is available at AveMariaPress.com. I'd encourage you to go click on the website, sign up to get the weekly emails, which will come to your inbox with all of that content that we're creating. Today's conversation is one that I think is very enlightening, one that's a bit challenging, one that made me think about my own particular role in the American and Catholic Church. And I hope we'll encourage you to think about that as well. So without further ado, a conversation with my friend, J.D. Flynn. J.D., thanks for coming back on AVA Explorers.
1: Thank you so much for having me again. You know, usually when I'm on a podcast one time, that's it because I I don't (laughs) tend to make a good first impression. So I'm I'm glad you're having me back. Thank you. Yeah. Well, now we're podcast
0: and you've been on my radio show, so we're we're doing pretty good. Three for that's three true. so far. Yeah, that's um, true. Thank you. I'm glad to have you. You are the founding editor in chief of Pillar Catholic. Uh, tell me a little bit about your initiatives and what you're doing with that awesome. I don't even call it a ministry, but that work.
1: Sure. Yeah, we're calling it uh, we're we're calling it a journalism project, and sometimes we. We call it a sort of journalism apostolate, although I, you know, again it's a little bit tricky, but at least this work that we're trying to do, I think, for for the Lord and and for the kingdom. Yeah, so I am I'm the co-founder of um of The Pillar, PillarCatholic.com, with uh with Ed Condon, another canon lawyer and a Catholic journalist who uh who is also a friend and with whom um, I've been working for a while. And um Ed and I um founded uh the pillar to um to create a space where we could kind of um, step back from the day-to-day of the news cycle um, and uh, to try to do some work, to try to do more um, investigative work. We have known um, in the past few years that there's a lot of investigative work to be done. I think everybody in the church has known, like when the McCarrick report came out, there were a lot of uh, answers in the McCarrick report, but a lot of unanswered questions and, and a lot of questions that we thought um, deserved attention. So we wanted to uh, to step back and to be able to, to do some of that investigative work and at the same time to be able to look um, kind of at the big picture, not just to look at the problems, which is what investigative work tends to do, but to um look at solutions, what's working, what's really working in the church what what isn't working in the church um what could be uh what could be imitated in other places, you know, how can we learn from each other and you know sometimes um sometimes we have uh i think the, there's just sort of momentum that gets sort of that builds up around an idea in the church or a ministry in the church or a project in the church where everybody's like, yeah, this is the thing, this is the future. And uh, and we've noticed that ourselves with lots of things that we're interested in or excited about. But what, one of the things that we wanted to do was kind of like see if we could be more objective at looking at mm. um, particular projects and ministries and apostles and saying, uh, you know, um, to what degree are they really bearing fruit? What fruit are they trying to bear? And to what degree are they really bearing that fruit? And uh, and what are the factors that really go into um, helping people to grow in faith and helping people to grow in in uh, in loving the church and in loving the Lord and in wanting to be saints. Because I think a lot of times we, in in um, in ministry context in the life of the church, we make a lot of assumptions or we sort of universalize our own um, our own particulars, our own experiences. And so we just wanted to step back and use some of the tools of journalism to be able to do kind of deep dive investigative work and also um, a, a look at what's happening in the life of the church and what's working.
0: Yeah. Well, you said something in that. That immediately struck me. The investigative part is so essential because maybe maybe it's just because we're so connected online. Maybe it's just because it's the information highway and the 24-hour news cycle, but it feels like more is going on in the life of the church now than ever before. It's not to say that, like, the church was boring in the past, but it feels like we know more of what's going on. I mean, if you were to have a conversation with my grandfather, you know, as a Catholic in the 80s, like, he didn't necessarily know what was going on at the Vatican or, like, wasn't getting tweet updates about the McCarrick report and when it was actually going to come out and what it was going to contain. But yet, that's common dinner conversation around my table. Um, Why do you think... So that investigative work is so necessary. Do you think it's good that we know... Everything that's going
1: on—that's um, that's a really good question, a really important question. Time out. Yeah, um, you're recording both sides of the audio, right? Or did you want me to be recording my side?
0: Yeah, I'm recording both sides. Oh, you're okay, good. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That that's a really good question and a really important question. Do we benefit from knowing uh, as much as we know, or as as much as as much as is accessible to us? And you know, it's interesting because Ed and I have often talked about the fact that um, journalism provides a mechanism of public accountability. Um, that is to say people behave well when they know that their other people are watching or what they mm-hmm. do is going to be seen. But the only way to provide a mechanism of public accountability is to sort of impose other people's bad behavior on, on a set of readers or something like that. Um, although we have found truthfully, you know, um, the the kind of investigative journalism that has made us the, the most satisfied is, is the times when we're able to bring an issue to um, a diocese or a religious institute or whatever and say, hey, we've looked into this and we see that you have this problematic policy or a problematic issue, and can you give us a comment? And within a couple of hours, we get a phone call back that says— we've resolved the issue and this is the way we've done it. And in other words, in a certain way, we don't have the story anymore, but instead of having the story, we can see, oh, there's been a, a resolution to an issue, you know? And mm-hmm. in that case, mm-hmm. we don't always have to sort of, um, put, put dirty laundry into the street because, um, because that is hard. You know, I think we do know a lot about the church and, uh, and that's hard. It's the same as knowing, Uh, It's just knowing, you know, sort of maybe knowing too much about your in-laws or something like that. Right. (laughs) It's difficult to have a relationship with them. And we want to have a relationship of trust with the church. And we want to look at the church as our mother. And sometimes knowing about the sinfulness of especially the church's leaders can can be a challenge to that. Um, I guess I would say I really and truly believe that, um, and and I've seen this manifest, I I hope other people too, but I really and truly believe that bringing things um, into the light is, uh, is the, is the single best way to sort of bring them to the Lord for, mm. um, for his healing, to bring grace into a situation. And and I know that from my own life, you know, I kind of can't, I, I can't, um, I can't address a situation of sinfulness in my own life sort of by pushing it down, right? I can address it by bringing it to the Lord in in the sacrament of confession. Mm -hmm. Or I can't address a problem in my marriage by sort of just like internalizing it and internalizing it. I can address a problem in my marriage by, you know, sitting down with my wife and saying, hey, this is something that we're struggling with and what can we do? And then hopefully we can talk about it and then also pray about it. And in a certain way, if, if our work in, in journalism in the sphere of the of, of the church is to bring things to the light so that we, as a as the communion of the baptized, can ask the Lord to give us healing for them, well, um, thanks be to God for that. I'm, I'm glad about that, and I think that's true. But I would also say that for people who find um, that reading too much news about the Catholic Church or knowing too much about sort of the leaders of the Catholic Church isn't um, beneficial to their spiritual life or is harm for their spiritual life or it's making them cynical or just overwhelmed— they should just stop. I mean, mm-hmm. we, at, at least I can say at the pillar um, we would rather people are pursuing um, the path that is helping them to become uh, a saint, helping them to be in intimate union with God. than we would have them clicking on our stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and obviously um, it's helpful for us when people read our stuff um, and, it, and, and it's helpful for, for the kind of work that we're trying to do, but we would much rather people do uh, people make their own discernment With their with their family, with a confessor or spiritual director, about how much media to consume, because I think all of us have to do that all the time. When Mm -hmm. is too much, too much? Yeah. And uh, and you know, as parents, we make that decision for our kids to some extent. When is even just like too much Mickey Mouse Clubhouse or something too much? (laughs) And um,
0: I think that's on right now in my living room.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Yeah, yeah, Uh, it's on a lot here too, Um, and we have to make a decision too. Especially because it's not just a difficult ecclesiastical news. We also know far more about. Our political leaders than mm-hmm. you know we ever have before, and um, and and other big public figures, and that's just such a such a challenge, you know.
0: I think it's interesting that as American Catholics, the news is often it seems to be about. What's going on in the American Catholic Church or, I mean, obviously, like, of course, I'm living in Louisiana, you're in Colorado, we are in the United States of America, I'm sure there's commentators in England, there's there's commentary happening in Africa, there's commentary happening in Italy itself on the ground, but it seems sometimes that in American Catholicism, um, and I'm saying American Catholicism very colloquially, it's Catholicism and we are American Catholics. Yeah. Um, that this immediate divide kind of goes up on any issue. Uh, so like today we're recording and the Vatican has, has released this information about acolytes and altar servers. Mm-hmm. And like within 10 minutes of seeing the post this morning that the Pope changed something, I, without even clicking on things, I knew commentary was going to come from different right. sides. I knew that right. there was, I was like, this is not a good day for Twitter. Like, I'm just going right. to avoid it because I don't want, I don't want to see the, 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 It's not even banter because banter is almost playful, like the arguing and the infighting. Is that a uniquely American thing or have you seen that in your travels? Like there's huge divides happening in the news reporting in Africa. There's huge divides happening in England or wherever, wherever you've been boots on the ground.
1: Well, I think you know i i th- I'm it, I, as you ask that, I'm thinking especially probably uh, about the church and the way that the way that um people look about and read coverage of the church in Italy, where you know in uh, where the Holy See is, where the Holy See is headquartered, and there it's a place where you know people in a certain way almost follow ecclesiastical politics you know, almost like following, um, soccer, mm-hmm. uh, or, 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 basketball or something. And that's not, that's, a, or horse racing. And that's definitely, you know, that to excess is definitely not healthy. You know what I mean? Um, where it becomes mm-hmm. sort of just like cheering for your guy or whatever. And, and we can have that where we have almost instinctive, instinctive negative reactions to something who we have, you know, to something done by someone who we have a sort of distinctively negative impression of instead of sort of like seeing a person, seeing, seeing the, the church, as a communion of baptized people and sort of seeing people as individuals. And uh, we can get into sort of seeing it, seeing ecclesiastical affairs as a kind of um, team sport Mm -hmm. um, and and following it in the same way. Uh, I have definitely seen that in Italy, I think probably in the UK a little bit less so probably in the developing world where the church is still growing. Um, Thanks be to God for that. I think here, you know, I think, I think the key is um, so many things are less, um, stark and less sort of um good or bad uh, less as good or as bad as we would like them to be you know on first impression when we like gather the facts you know and just the more we can inform ourselves on some of these things that are um uh you know that become controversial the the more we can see often the controversy is a tempest in a teapot and is stirred up i think by stirred up sometimes by people who are looking to get the clicks or um or to get the views on youtube or to sell um books and that kind of commodification of the life of the church is in a certain way an infiltration katie i would say mm-hmm. into into our own lives and into the kind of spiritual health that we should be pursuing right i mean it's it's sort of bringing in this language of polemics and this language of division when uh when that's not helpful for us mm-hmm. in in the life of the church i mean there are times when there's conflict there are times when there's tension but um but to, to sort of see the church through that lens or to see the affairs of the life of the church, that lens of conflict and good guys and bad guys and white hats and bad hats. It's, it's really an incursion of a spirit of division into the life of the church that we don't uh, we don't need. So, you know, with this thing that that happened today, the day we're recording with the pope um, uh, making uh, new policies about lectors and acolytes and what that means. You know, I think truthfully, if you. Um, if you if you look at the facts of what actually happened and you look at the history of it and you look at sort of the, the meaning of it and what the Pope said and what the Pope didn't say, it's neither, you know, the victory that these guys said or the victory that those guys said. It's something uh, more uh, more rich than that, more nuanced than that, more complex than that. And if at the end of the day you don't think it's a good idea or a bad idea, that's one thing. It at least helps to understand that it's it's not neither character of it mm-hmm. that's been presented. And I think that's so often the case in the life of the Church and the way that these things are framed.
0: Yeah. That's a great point that there is almost, I feel sometimes the discourse is almost a cause of scandal in people's own lives and people's own hearts. And that, I mean, it can cause tension around the dinner table. It can cause tension within the life of the parish. Um, I'm specifically thinking of uh, our mutual friend, Father Cassidy Stinson, a young priest in Richmond who, like, his first week on the job, I mean, he is a baby priest, and somebody marched up to him with literally Twitter posts, and they were like, you should be preaching about this. And it's
1: like,
0: maybe instead we could talk about the gospel. So it begs the question, JD, when you think about the American Catholic Church today in 2021, after the year we've had in 2020 with... Parish is closed with the discourse with the McCarrick report with the scandals that that we all know have been going on and are continuing to go on with a division of liturgical preferences, I mean, just the laundry list of issues. Would you say that the American Catholic Church is healthy right now, or do we need to use the metaphor at the moment? Do we need our own little vaccine <laughs> to kind of come back to life?
1: yeah, well, you know when you ask that question i of course I can't help but think about that you know that sort of famous Chestertonian question: What's wrong with the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, I am, you know, yeah. um, is the church spiritually healthy in the United States of America? Um, I'm not. I, I, I'm. I'm. I hope that I'm growing uh, close to the, to the Lord and and growing in holiness and in virtue. But I can also see where my own uh where my own weaknesses are a propensity towards that kind of uh, towards being attracted at least to that kind of like polemical framing a propensity towards being sort of online too much and less and, and 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 sort of too interested in those machinations instead of being immersed in the life of my own parish a propensity towards thinking that um you know a, a self and overinflated sense of self and an under um, appreciation for the power of grace and the sacraments and maybe those things are microcosmic of um uh, of the situation of the church in the United States um and, and probably in a certain way they are but I think all of us can can start at least by examining um what are the ways in which um the sort of worst and basest tendencies of um the secular culture all around us have uh have infected um the way in which we look at the church and the way in which we practice the, practice the faith and live the Christian life and what are the what are the things which are impediments to to them and then I think we can say yeah beyond ourselves we can see um a tendency towards, um, uh, in the one hand is sort of tendency towards individualism, a tendency towards like the primacy of our own judgment over the judgment of the church, um, uh, a, a tendency to kind of make a, um, to make a hobby over the sort of, um, day-to-day affairs of the life of the church for, for a lot of young Catholics. I, I know, um, instead of, uh, instead of the, the really hard work of, um, of proclaiming the gospel and also the really hard work of, of learning how to love people as, as much as the Lord loves us, um, you know, I think sometimes we can sort of forget about those those difficult challenges, and uh, and so I think you know, I think there are, some, there are real aspects of health in the life of the church in the United States. We can say, first of all, that the Eucharist is celebrated, you know, on nearly every altar, um, mm-hmm. nearly every church in the United States, whether or not we're allowed to be there. Uh, I don't know because we're taping this in advance, um, yeah. <laughs> but still, the grace is there, um, and uh, and yeah. and, and and many of us want want to learn how to to serve and follow the Lord. But I still, I do think at the same time, yeah, we're probably in a period where we should be asking the Holy Spirit for renewal of the church and then looking for the signs of that renewal.
0: I, that's a great point that we're, the problem is never, it, it's the same argument that people can make. Well, there's so, all these problems with the church. And my question is always, well, who is the church? Like the church isn't right. a building. The church isn't just the Pope, like we are the church. And so if there's a problem, you know, I can try to help solve it. Or maybe I'm, part of it. And so there needs to be a bit of that self-reflection. I think we would both agree, and I'm sure our listeners too, that the sex abuse crisis and scandals of the past 20-odd years, at least them coming to light in the way that they have, has been a source of great pain in the church. Um, Whether it's people leaving, whether it's obviously the the victims of the abuse, and then the cover-ups, and then the reckoning with that, and the lack of trust, whether it's policies put in place that seem to maybe sometimes not even work um how do you think the sex abuse crisis in a unique way affected american catholics because i mean it, it was happening everywhere around the world again our experiences of the church here in the states but it seems to have as a millennial it deepened the distrust of institutions i feel like yeah. how else do you think that that sex abuse crisis has really harmed the church in america
1: well that how else i mean that's a really that is a very important one. Um, because uh, the, the you know, sort of growing distrust in institutions is a hallmark, and institutions is a, obviously a hallmark of, uh, of broad swaths of American culture right now, and uh, you don't have to um, but look at the paper to understand why. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the sort of second wave, the 2018, the McCarrick wave of the sex abuse crisis in the United States, I think was such a sobering and difficult moment for a lot of people because a lot of us, um, you know, grew up or kind of came of age uh uh, watching what happened in 2002 with the sex defeat scandal of 2002 and then believing um the church sort of saying church leaders sort of saying that's in the past that's in the past that's in the past and and we've handled it And then in 2000 and and sort of being willing to put our trust in that and i I remember really sort of believing the idea oh that's all just sort of a fanciful creation of the anti-catholic liberal media and those kinds of things and then um and then realizing, I think, the degree to which, no, this is a problem of the right now. And uh, and this is a problem that has been uh, only partially handled. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is a problem of ours, not a problem of the anti-Catholic liberal media, so to speak. Um, really, I think the first wave said um, there are people in the church who are doing bad things. The second wave, there are people in the church who are unwilling to accept the reality of those bad things or take account for the reality of those bad things or tell the truth Mm -hmm. about those bad things or just, you know, look at the truth and accept it for what it is, um, I I think hurt so much more because Mm -hmm. it it came with the feeling for a lot of people of having been lied to or misled. And, uh, you know, sexual abuse of minors and sexual abuse and coercion is pervasive in so many corners of society. And we know that, I mean, we can think about like you know, Weinstein and, and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then kind of the, the Me Too movement, I think raised our consciousness of the, uh, of, uh, I think the Me Too movement raised the consciousness of men about the pervasiveness of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in so many places. Um, mm-hmm. I hesitate to say raised our consciousness because what women usually say to me is, oh, we knew it all along, which yes. is, yeah. you know, which is true. You have a set of experiences, uh, you know, women have a set of experiences that, and, uh, that, that men don't often have, or don't have as often. Um, but, but, um, so it's true that we know that like sexual perversion and sexual immorality and harassment and coercion, those things are pervasive in many sectors of society, um, and are pro- are covered up in many sectors of society or denied in many sectors of society or obfuscated. But um, I think because the church makes claims about truth and redemption and transformation and sanctification and holiness, because the church is uh, is and ought to be a moral authority we have expectations of the church, um, uh, living in a more uh, the church and her members and her leaders living in a more moral way and, um, and, and living up to the leaders of the church, sort of living up to the promise of the gospel. And, you know, I've thought a lot about whether that's fair or not. I think sort of the first premise of being a Catholic is, um, I'm here because I'm a grave sinner, and I've discovered that there's no way for me to transform sort of out of that sinfulness, save for the Lord. So if I can accept that about myself, I should sort of expect that everybody else there is a grave sinner too. It's kind of Mm a sinner's club. But at the same time, um, I think it can be hard for us to accept even the premise that the Lord can transform us if we have looked at the leaders of the church, of the sort of institutional leaders of the church as models of of holiness or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think maybe one of the lessons is that um, institutional authority in the church is not always correlated to holiness, and the mystery of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit gives charisms and and, and genuine authority and genuine powers um, to people who are no more or less likely to be holy um, than the rest of us, but that's a, a mystery, I think, that takes some reconciling and, and some grappling with.
0: I hope you're enjoying this conversation with J.D. Flynn, the co-founder and editor of The Pillar Catholic News. You can find all of the content that we are creating for this Ave Explorer series on Catholicism around the world over at AveMariaPress.com. I'd encourage you to click over there, find uh, how to sign up for our email so you can get all of the content straight to your inbox every week, articles, podcasts, videos, and more. All right, back to the show.
1: Ultimately, it's good news, but it takes some grappling with
0: it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely... Like, I think back to when I was in seventh grade in 2002. I'm aging myself. Um, although I'm younger than you, I will say that.
1: Uh, <laughs> are you doing like the math? A junior in college in 2002. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and we... Like, I remember hearing about it. I got back from a summer camp. And, like, my parents sat me down to explain to me that one of the priests of our diocese had been arrested. And so, like... I mean, it fundamentally like kind of shifted my understanding of who who those men were, and like, yeah. and then like you go back through your head of like, okay, did I notice things or did I, and and like even right. now as an adult working in ministry and in education, like that's kind of a like you're I, I almost at least my answer to the very same question would be like I almost kind of feel like it put Catholics a little bit on edge in regards to relationships within the life of the church, with people in, in positions of power and authority, I guess when I mean, we both ascribed to the belief that God never permits an evil from which a greater good cannot be drawn, um, I wonder what what we've learned about the faith and how maybe the church has grown out of such a hard time um, yeah. and in the unpacking of it. I mean, in the same way of like your journalistic Efforts and again, this is not to like say, oh, it's good those things happened because these, you know, these right. good things came out of it. But just like if we're looking at that and grappling with that scandal as American Catholics, what what have we, what have we done better since then?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I'd like to think that institutionally, I mean, I'm, I, think institutionally, you know, thanks be to God, first of all, that the McCarrick scandal even happened in 2018 is a sign of um, a, a set of decisions by Pope Francis that um, that brought to the fore accusations of. Mm-hmm. sexual abuse and coercion on the part of a cardinal that had not been brought to the fore before, right? So the fact that the thing even happened meant that the church was moving in the right direction towards accountability and transparency and, and those kinds of things and continues to, and in fits and starts. I mean, some things that that the church is doing right now with Fos Estes, Lex Mundi, and these other policies are working really well, and some things are not working really well. And sometimes you talk to Um, sort of institutional church leaders. And you think like, oh, they really get it. And sometimes you talk to them and you think like, I wonder if they've been listening, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's fits and starts, which is always the case. uh, I think for, which is always the case. And I think it's good to recognize that there are really, there are real positives there on that front. I I think at a deeper level, um, I think for a lot of people, there has had been um, a sort of implicit, perhaps even unrecognized correlation between Authority in the authority in the church and holiness, or um, or status in the church and holiness. Like, wow, that person must be, um, you know, the, a, a bishop. A bishop must be really holy, and a cardinal is um, extra holy. And um, or, you know, um, to bring it to the to the lay level, wow, that person came and gave a powerful speech at our school or pair a powerful parish renewal mission. That person must be uh, really close to the Lord. And it's funny because God gives gifts to certain people, whether they're sort of formal—the formal charisms of authority and and things like that—or um, charisms of being a good teacher or being a good. And, but those things are not sort of one to one correlated to the moral life, right? So a person mm-hmm. who genuinely has good gifts can also be abusing and, uh, abusing those gifts, whether in an institutional way or in a personal way. And uh, and so I think we can. I think. The good that comes out of kind of recognizing that is recognizing that um, holiness is um, for all of us and that all of us can be, uh, all of us have the possibility of being holy and uh, and and that like being holy isn't something that's sort of reserved to mm-hmm. professional Catholics in, in one way or another. In fact, professional Catholics are arguably sometimes mm-hmm. less likely maybe to be holy, I don't know. Um, and I say that as a person who probably fits into that classification and has like three <laughs> <Myself> virtues, <too. laughs> you know, maybe one virtue, maybe. Um, and so um, so I, I think that's a good thing. I think the other thing is that the, you know, the church has long said that, um, you know, uh, it's important for victims, uh, victim survivors of abuse to be able to share their experience. And I've seen the, that victims, that in some cases, the voices of victim survivors have really led the way in the past year. So we're hearing experiences more and being able to be shaped by the hearing of those experiences and, uh and and then I think um a lot of people i think have experienced anger or despondency or discouragement or frustration or rage um, over these things and um and that's not a good thing um but well what is a good thing i guess is that it po- that points to the fact that we all know sort of innately that there's a mm-hmm. thing called justice and but but it but it's it's too bad that this has happened um in the sense that none of us should have to experience those things but what has happened, I think, or I hope, is um, that we've all learned how important it is that we turn to the Lord with these things in a real way and give them to him. And I, I hope that we've all learned that we can can give them to the Lord. I mean, I really, one of the most powerful images for me of 2020 was Pope Francis, like with the monstrance in the rain, sort of mm-hmm. like asking God to heal us from a pandemic that, you know, it was March. So we all still thought it was going to like definitely kill every single one of us. Right. And now, now we know only some of us. Um, but, but still, I mean, like the Pope really just like in a really natural, beautiful human way saying like, God, please spare us this. And -hmm. I think a lot of us have had to turn in prayer to the Lord since 2018, experiencing the challenges of the church in the United States saying, God, please spare us this. God, please heal us of this. And when we're broken, um, and we know that we're broken or when we're helpless and we know that we're helpless, um, the opportunity in that moment is a new level, a new kind of divine intimacy because we bring our brokenness, our helplessness, our inability to heal the situation to the Lord. And and we become perhaps like a child sort of sitting in his father's lap and his father's helping him with the thing. And, and there's this moment of, of uh, there's this new kind of trust that's, uh, that's, that's built there. And mm-hmm. I would hope in a certain way that um, a new kind of trust has been built for us in the Lord and ask him to heal us and, and heal our church.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that healing, I think, is definitely happening oftentimes in very unseen quiet ways not always when you're scrolling or clicking or even having like conversations with quote-unquote people in power but it's it's yeah. the it's the quiet moments of parish life where you see people continuing to show up or where you have the conversation like you said with somebody who has experienced intense hurt i think for a lot of us in 2020 that that's quiet work um maybe even some of like that that healing happening on a systemic level. I don't want to say it came to a halt, but it became a lot more hidden because of COVID and because of mm-hmm. parishes closing and because of, of people having to stay home or watching mass online, which, you know, is is good, but like the least fulfilling thing in the world because, it, I mean, it's, it's... My husband likened it one time to like watching an NFL game when you've been to NFL games your whole life. And it's like, if I have season tickets, the last thing I want to do is actually watch it on the television. Right, right, you know, right, yeah. mm-hmm. how do you think American Catholicism, how do you think the American church is going to recover from the COVID crisis, which we still have no timeline on, right? Yeah. Like we thought, oh, by June, for sure, like all those conferences in the summer are gonna happen and then they didn't right. happen. Oh, oh yeah. by Christmas, for sure. And then, you know, we're seeing lockdowns setting place again in Christmas and and things are open where I am for better or worse, uh, right. masks are required and we can go in person. Thank God. How, how do you think we come out of this? Or like, if you could come up with your master plan, what would it include?
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, one thing that's kind of cool that has really struck me as being neat is there's a lot of data that, or not a lot of data, there are some surveys, um, from, uh, that have been conducted from bipolsters that, in which people say that they have the expectation of, um, of, uh, of, sort of practicing their faith, practicing religion, going to church more frequently once they're able to. Um, now I don't know if that's just sort of absence makes the heart grow fonder, and you you know, or what. But 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 a lot of people have said, at least, um, that they want to be going to church more often once they're able to go to church more often. And so that's an opportunity for the church. Now um, that's an opportunity for the church to find new ways to be. uh, uh, welcoming, which sounds like a cliche, but what I really mean is to find new ways to like help people who walk into the door, get plugged into a community that is uh, meaningful in their life and to help Mm -hmm. them find a way in which, um, uh, Christ, the Lord of history, can also be the, the Lord of their life. And and that's a real thing. So it is an opportunity. And one thing that I think is cool is that um, pastors, a lot of um, pastors that you and I know have been, and, and bishops too, have been really creative about different ways to kind of engage with people and connect with people during this uh, during this time. And, uh, and I think it's going to require the same kind of creativity for people who walk in the door. But I also think... Um, but I also think the truth is, you know, before the pandemic, we were already facing before the pandemic and even before the scandal, we were already facing an incredibly sort of stark prospect with regard to the decline of religious practice in America, that fewer and fewer people were, were identifying with anything, the so-called rise of the nuns and all that. And, uh, and so it has long been obvious, um, I think, to those with ICC that the church needs to have a uh, to To have a renewal of a missionary orientation and by the church there, I mean all of us that all of us need to really kind of have a have a have a new sense of christian identity that is that that hinges on being missionaries and proclaiming the gospel and inviting people into a relationship with Christ and his church. Mm-hmm. and i I think, you know, kind of going back to what good might come out of all this difficulty, I, I think or I hope that um that if this moment is a moment in which Uh, We don't see people sort of as easily reconnecting with the church. It's an opportunity. We we do see it as an opportunity to, or becomes almost by necessity, an opportunity to really take stock of, okay, are we waiting for people to walk in the door? Um, Are we as lay people sort of presuming that the work of evangelization is the work of our pastor or some employee at the parish or something like that? Or um, are we sort of being reformed as a church? To see ourselves as what we are by circumstance, which is to say, missionaries in a largely unChristian culture. Hi, <laughs>
0: <laughs> bathroom trips—it's right down the hall.
1: No, that, was, the that was
0: that was that. I caught the tail end of that. Yeah. Very good. Um, so I guess at the end, or like as we're wrapping up, the we've dug into the divisiveness, we've dug into the commentary, we've dug into the the pain and the hurt that American Catholics have experienced, and maybe even sometimes inflict upon one another. We are recording a week after some events that I don't think any of us thought would transpire in the United States of America, where we, st- like, legitimately still haven't fully processed people storming into a Capitol building. Where, the Capitol,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, when I was in middle school, and we went to the Capitol on our grade school trip, like, the, they shut the place down, and we were all locked in for five minutes because there was a cell phone that wasn't being answered in the bag check. Like I distinctly remember yeah, yeah. thinking like I was." and then this happens, right, like you see people climbing and I the just walls.
1: assumed since September eleventh like gosh, if I take my shoes off at the airport, I just assume at the very least the is probably pretty secure, and then we yeah. discovered yeah. yeah
0: yeah and and I think the images that have been most striking to me, and then the commentary and the chatter that you're seeing online from people you know, either passively writing it off, like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal, only five people died, and you're just like, are you serious? Right. What were the the crosses and the flags of Jesus saves, and then, like, some commentary from Catholic folks who were, like, cheering it on and saying, like, this is a good thing, and I wish I was there. Um, In this moment, How are you processing it? Again, this is airing a month later, but like as an American Catholic, seeing some of that commentary or like watching some of this play out and maybe not even knowing what comes next, wondering, I keep asking myself, am I just blowing it out of proportion or is this like a serious moment that we'll tell our children someday, like this is where I was when X, Y, and Z began? Um, Just maybe even from not even from a journalist perspective, but just as J.D. Flynn, Catholic dad in Denver, Mm -hmm. Colorado, like how are you processing that? Yeah. You know,
1: it's. a lot of the conversation has been a lot of the, you know, a lot of the conversation has been um, what happened is not um, unique because um, there have been, this has been a a year of political violence and sociologists have been predicting like a rise in political violence in the United States for quite some time. And so I guess they're vindicated. Yeah, they were right. (laughs) In their prediction. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that is unique about the political violence that just occurred from, from the perspective of a believer is that, this was a summer of political violence and outrageous political violence and, um, you know, the, also protests, right? I mean, these two things were kind of hand in hand. And and mm-hmm. and so I don't want to sort of paint everything with one brush. But, I mean, you know, burning courthouses and these kinds of things. Um, but a lot of it was overtly anti-religious. I mean, you can't deny, like, that there were religious statues torn down and defaced and graffitied and, you know, tr- churches lit on fire and um and and that the philosophical principles of a lot of the people kind of perpetuating political violence were were um, were not cr- christian principles what seems to me unique about what we observed at the capitol is that this was political violence in some cases sort of gussied up in the trappings of religious language mm. and uh, and that's a different thing right i mean so like sort of taking up religious language as a kind of justification or or um explanation of why it was necessary. And 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 you see that now because like Christianity, you know, the Christian language has been sort of co-opted by the kind of QAnon universe and just the forces of nationalism, which is nothing new, and and, and these other things. And you have this weird nexus of like political violence, conspiracy theories, and then Christianity. And and as a person who who professes the faith and tries to live it, I don't think that's a legitimate nexus, but nevertheless, Christianity becomes kind of the close for some of this stuff, not all of it, but some of it mm-hmm. and that is, that is unique. And, uh, and I think it's okay for us to say it's especially jarring for disciples of the Lord to see the Lord kind of used or the, the imagery of the faith kind of used to justify this kind of thing or to be associated with political violence. It's especially unsettling, um, so I guess that's one thought. Another thought is just, you know, I do think, I could I could be wrong, and please God that I am, but I, I do think that things are not about to tamp down. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. to me that once political violence sort of gets underway, it easily sort of just go, goes away. Um, so I do think things are not, you know, I think this is an extremely challenging time for our country. And, uh, you know, Katie, by the time you publish this episode, Lord knows, right? I mean, right, right. <laughs> Lord knows, really. <laughs>
0: Part of me wants to drop it next week just so that it's timely, but I also need a time capsule to look back on a month later.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting as a time capsule, uh, but, you know, um, believers are both um, citizens of the countries in which they live and citizens of an eternal city. Mm -hmm. And um, we have an obligation to work for justice and, um, you know, to work for truth in in the circumstances in which the Lord has placed us. But our primary obligation is um, is to make it, to the end of our pilgrimage to, to, to the heavenly banquet and to get as many people there with us as we possibly can. And we don't want to, um, we don't want to lose sight of that. I think there's a temptation to sort of become so enmeshed in the temporality of like very serious and real and egregious political problems that we, we we don't have the kind of detachment from the things of this world that believers ought to have to be able Mm. to say as bad as things are, you know, to take the cliche, you know, God is in control. And as bad as things are, there's a limit to what I can do. And the limit of what I can do is um, is the limit of um, to what degree is this in accord with um, Christian moral principles mm-hmm. and then also just the vocation of the Christian to, to, to know the Lord and then to mm-hmm. proclaim the Lord. Um, and I think I think if we can look at things through that lens, my primary obligation is to make it to the end of this pilgrimage and to enter into eternity, we, we're kind of, I think, Moderated or tempered, tempered or, or um, set apart by that perspective in a way that helps us to, to evaluate what's happening and see it in light of the eternal reality, um, and um, to know that our destiny is not t- is not wholly tied up in the affairs of this world,
0: um, mm-hmm. but, in,
1: but in the affairs of the Lord. Um, that our business, as it were, you know, that that we ought, uh, as it were ought to sort of be. Looking towards our father's house and to be yeah. in our father's business, and I think that gets harder and harder. But I think, you know, in season and out of season, we're called to know God in contemplation and to proclaim the kingdom. And that's our that's the those are the primary things which you know to to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and all our might, and to love our neighbors ourselves. Those are the things that the Lord actually told us to do. And it seems to me that if that's the perspective that those have primacy. That, at least for me, has been sort of a helpful instance for knowing what I should be doing in a, mm-hmm. in a time like this.
0: I think that's a, a perfect place to, to end and, and, a, and a very encouraging word in what is, I don't know about you, but I'm anxious, like an anxious moment. Like, a, like a, yeah. I don't know what's coming next. Like, I don't, you know, sometimes even feel like I don't even know what I can say to the person that's sitting next to me in the pew. Right. Because it's like, where do you fall on the spectrum? And like, I I just don't feel like that's how we should be as Catholics.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree.
0: You wrote an excellent piece about this on the pillar. Um, Thank you. Where can we find more about you guys and subscribe to your work and support you?
1: Sure. So our project is um, is www.pillarcatholic.com, and our project is—our aim is to spend most of our time doing deep-dive investigative work, but to continue to produce some um, analyses and short-form reporting and explainers and profiles along the way. And, uh, and so we publish that at www.pillarcatholic.com, and you can also sign up there for um, our newsletters, and then you won't even have to go to our site. You'll just get our stuff in your inbox on Tuesdays and Fridays— and, uh, and, um, at what we do, what we produce is free. Um, you can sign up to, uh, uh, to pay for it. We think it's worth paying for it, but, um, we think it's worth getting it in your hands too. So, uh, so it's free for you one way or the other. Um, and, uh, and thanks Katie for letting me, letting me talk a little bit about the pillar. I appreciate
0: Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you've got a podcast.
1: Oh yeah. And we have a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we do. <laughs> we do have a podcast, <laughs> pillar podcast, uh, the pillar podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts and, uh, and it's a weekly look at, um, at the News in the Life of the Church and the Life of the World from the Perspective of Faith.
0: Awesome. We'll have that all down in the show notes. J.D., thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You know, when we think about the Church from a global perspective, right, when we think about Catholicism around the world, literally the name of the series, something profound happens, right? We begin to think about things in a very particular and personal level as we think about the Church on a very big, global, universal level. I know for one, after having this conversation with JD, thinking especially about the church uh, and the the different challenges that we have faced with the pandemic, you know, I I thought about my own parish. I thought about the ways that my pastor has tackled the circumstances, the ways that my own personal faith life has been challenged or has grown. When we think about things from the 10,000 foot view, like we're doing with this particular series, I think what actually ends up happening is that we begin to see the very personal elements and aspects of our faith. And that's a good thing. That's something that can help us grow. That's something that can help us appreciate our faith, maybe live our faith, share our faith a little bit more. The church in America is certainly not immune to both crisis and scandal and challenge. And yet, even within that, there are good, holy, faithful people who are continuing to preach and to share and to live the gospel so thinking about that and learning about that thinking about it from our own particular parish perspective our own diocesan perspective from a larger scale perspective in all of that we can continue to grow in our faith to continue to grow closer to jesus christ to continue to share the good news you can find everything that we are creating for this ave explores series over on avemariapress.com sign up to get those weekly emails We'd encourage you, too, to to listen to our entire podcast season. We've had some great episodes so far with Cardinal Napier of Durban, South Africa, Malcolm Hart from the bishop's office in Australia. Later this week, we have a conversation with Brenda Noriega about her experience of American Catholicism when she immigrated to the United States from Mexico, an excellent conversation that I loved having with her. She's also part of uh, a Vatican commission of young people, so she gets to see the church on a global scale quite frequently. I hope you tune back in. We'd, of course, be grateful for a rating and a review of this show so that more people can find it listen to it get in on the fun you can give that rating and review on apple Podcasts, google play spotify wherever you find your podcast we'd be grateful for you to share it we'd be grateful for you to give it five stars grateful for you to subscribe to the whole series and of course we are eternally grateful that you listened to us this week and we hope you come back later in the week for episode two of this first week of our ave explorers series thanks so much and we'll see you soon